Ephesians chapter 1. Take your scriptures and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. And young people, you'll notice on, on the handout, I got them to you late. I was going to try to have these provided for you as you walked in. Uh, but you get to uh, identify who's preaching this morning. That should be easy. And then your favorite song, you might have to look back through the list or just choose the last one that we sing. Uh, and then there's, some, there's a place there to put terms that you don't understand. Ephesians is going to have a lot of terms uh, that you don't understand. And this hopefully will help assist the parents to, to come alongside of you and help define some of these more difficult ideas and phrases. Ephesians chapter 1, we will only get through verse 4 this morning. I've been in ministry for 25 years, discipled and counseled countless, at this point, countless people. And I am convinced through that counseling and through that discipleship uh, that some of the very doctrines that we find in Ephesians, even in Ephesians chapter 1, have either been ignored completely or handled not for their beauty or intended encouragement, but simply to prove or disprove a system of theology or have been so overdefined outside of the boundaries of Scripture that it's caused unnecessary fear and wrong thoughts about God. And you're going to see what I mean when we get into Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that our experience is like that of the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, John McKay, who wrote about Ephesians saying this, to this book I owe my life. He goes on to talk about an experience he had when he was 14 years old back in 1903. And of his own account, he says this. After reading Ephesians, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. So you have this new birth experience. Because he read this letter to the Ephesians. So we're just going to go through the introduction quickly this morning and then get to two primary verses. Uh, First of all, I want you to know, we're going to go back to verse one, the introduction. Remember, this is a letter. So it was customary to identify yourself as the author and the recipients. And then also sometimes include the message sort of in brief form in that introduction. Look at verse one. We'll see the author, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Okay, so I want you to note his identity, Paul, and in this case, he's an apostle. That's he is a sent one. So you have identity and credentials. That idea sent one apostle is really where we get our term missionary. Missionary is not used anywhere in the scripture. Uh, So it kind of combines the offices of evangelist and apostle sent one, but not like the biblical apostles who had to see the risen Christ and walked with him on the earth. Okay, so in that sense, Paul is he, he talks about himself as an apostle born out of time. So he was the last of this kind of apostle. That word sent one in classical Greek usually referred to either military or cargo ships that were sent out. For a purpose, they were equipped for a for a specific mission. That is what Paul says he is. He's writing to this church. He says, I, Paul, the apostle, the sent one. And then he says this by the will of God. 
So he didn't take this office selfishly. It's not by human presumption or selfish ambition. It is by the will of God. Now notice something about the recipients. He says this, to the saints. What is a saint? And do you have to wait for a religious body to deem you worthy of that name? When he talks about saint, he's not talking about an elite class or a minority of exceptionally holy people. Oh, uh, she's a saint. He's a saint. No, he's talking about everybody who is a believer in God based upon their relationship to God. We don't go around calling each other this, but I, I am Saint Steve. And sometimes that, does, that, that is an oxymoron, if you know what those are. Or we have, you know, Saint Betty Lou. We're not waiting for somebody to, like, have a service. And, you know, but we're not going to start calling each other that. Just know that if you are a believer in Christ, you are a saint. Even in spite of what we may or may have done yesterday foolishly or said or thought or how our children acted, if they are a believer, they're saints positionally. Practically, we're working on that. Uh, He says this, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And since the letter is a general style, they believe this is a, what they call a cyclical letter. It was given to churches in an area which is presently Western Turkey. There are no specific people mentioned, as Paul often does in his personal letters. There are no specific issues, as he mentions in, in the letter to the church at Colossae or Galatia or even to the Corinthians. Loaded, and he calls them saints too, even though that church was loaded with problems and loaded with issues needing to be addressed. So you have an Ephesus, the church at Ephesus may have been the most renowned church in the area. So it bears that name in the letter. Uh, something really quick about Ephesus. So we try to identify with them as people, as as real humanity. It was originally a Greek colony, but at the time of this letter, it was the capital of the Roman province in Asia. It was a busy commercial port. They worshipped the goddess Diana, also called Artemis. Paul's mission there years before he wrote this letter back to them was so effective, and I'm not going to read the whole account, but it was so effective that the silversmiths who would, who would fashion these little temples after Artemis or Diana, their business was affected because Paul's mission had that kind of an effect upon the people. As a matter of fact, in Acts 19, it said when the silversmiths heard this, the silversmiths went out and then created basically a riot. They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. At that point, the mob pulls believers into the arena. Paul is about to go in, and the other believers uh, counsel him not to even go inside. That's the stir that was created in, in Ephesus. It was not an easy place to be a Christian. And this is going to be important for us to know because Paul is not trying to add to their difficulty. He's not going to say, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to purposely communicate some truths to you to vex you and to think wrongly about God. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a set of doctrines so that you have down through the histories of church history, even evangelical church history, these two sides that are now divisive and are, and are hostile towards each other. So when we open this letter 
Everything we find in this letter is meant for encouragement and comfort as he scales the heights of this high peak called the letter to Ephesians. He says this also. He he calls them saints. He locates them in Ephesus and he says they are faithful. That simply is that they are united, called together. It's written to a church, not to an individual. They are united by a common faith in God and as a result should be faithful and have been, up to the writing of this letter, have been faithful. And then he says this, and this becomes one of the key terms that's going to help us understand this letter. It says, in Christ Jesus. Remember, we're we're still in verses 1 and 2. That's it. In Christ Jesus, that expression appears in different forms 11 times. And all it means is this. You are so connected to Jesus Christ that it is a vital, life-giving relationship. To be in Christ means to have life. To be outside of Christ means no life. So, in John 15, Jesus will will communicate the idea this way. As branches to a tree... Right? There's a vital relationship. He says, he is the vine, we are the branches. But if the branch is cut off, it dies. So in Christ means a vital connection. Paul will use this analogy twice in this small letter. Uh, not just branches to a tree, but individual body parts to a body. As a matter of fact, Christ is called the head. That's a body part. And if you are not connected to the head... You have no life. You might be a finger. You might be an arm. You might be a foot. I mean, in Corinthians, he actually he actually expands on that analogy of the body. But all of those only are animated and are useful and are of benefit if they are connected, have a vital connection to the head, which is Jesus Christ. So big point. Every person in here this morning is either in Christ and alive new birth, or outside of Christ, even though you're in a church building, outside of Christ and spiritually dead. Those are the only two choices. Here's the message. Look at verse 2. Paul actually departs from what was a typical Greek or Roman greeting and in, in a way creates his own to uncover or to shed light on two themes he's going to develop in this letter. Look at verse 2. Grace to you. And we sang a lot of songs about grace this morning on purpose to highlight the themes in Ephesians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is, it expresses the cause of all our blessings in Christ. Every blessing you enjoy in Jesus Christ is by is by God's unmerited and your undeserved favor. Your unmerited and undeserved favor. God showers that on you. We receive God's favor, but we didn't merit it and we didn't deserve it. And folks, if we're honest, we didn't merit it and we didn't deserve it this last week either, did we? It's grace. And where sin abounds and sin tried to abound in the last 48 hours, grace overabounds. That's good news. And then peace explains the effects that grace has. Actually, this is the tangible proof that you know somebody has experienced God's grace. They are at peace. First, peace with God, but also peace with each other. If somebody's life is characterized by constant infighting, 
constant slander, constant prickliness, there may be proof that they have never tasted God's grace. Peace, generally it means well-being, but in Ephesians it predominantly has the idea of the sinner's peace with God, where formerly there was enmity. Grace is the origin, peace is the result. Now, just 30 seconds to, to remind us of the structure. Ephesians 1 to 3 is the gospel story. It's rich doctrine. Ephesians 4 to 6 explains how the gospel story of Ephesians 1 to 3 should affect our lives, our story right now. And then here's the theme. Ephesians is all about what God the Father is doing in the church through Christ for his own glory. Verse 3. The next 12 verses, verses 3 to verse 14, I want you to look at how long that is. Just look at a copy of your scripture, and I want you to just put your finger at verse 3, and now put it at the period at the end of verse 14. It constitutes in the Greek a single complex sentence. Someone has said this is the most monstrous, monstrous sentence that was ever written, not because of its content, but because of its length. In the ESV, it is broken down into five sentences with a total of 246 words. In the, in the original Greek, it's one sentence with 202 words. Remember, there isn't always a word-for-word equivalent to every Greek expression, so you have more words using the English to help unpack these ideas. Now, we need to clarify what these verses are, what is their essence for us to correctly understand them. Chapter 1 divides naturally into two halves. Verses 3 to 14 is praise. And verses 15 to 23 is prayer. Okay, without getting, without getting too detailed, I want you to see in the order of which these things land. Because most biblical prayer that you will hear is fueled by a preceding biblical praise. Sometimes in the mornings, we need to stir our hearts by reminding ourselves of God's character, God's faithfulness, God's forgiveness, that he is faithful even when we are not, that he is gracious even when we are not. And we simply, whether we verbalize it or not, we are praising God for who he is. And when we start to praise God for who he is and what he has done, it sort of naturally just leads into prayer. So the appropriate praise precedes or fuels biblical prayer. And isn't it true, and I find this true in my life, when I am trusting in myself, even as a believer, when I'm just trusting in myself, I'm not turning to God in trust. But God will always make sure in His goodness that the circumstances of life change just a little bit or we're reminded of our weaknesses. And then we begin to praise Him again and that praise then fuels biblical prayer. We're going to look at verses 3 to 4 this morning. And here is the simple outline. And I've tried to use the phrasing in Scripture. Blessed by God. That's the first point. And the blessing of being chosen by God. That's the second point. Okay? Blessed by God, verse 3. The blessing of being chosen by God, verse 4. Look how Paul begins in verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, when Paul uses the term blessed, blessed be, blessed be God, he is indicating this is someone who deserves honor and praise and thanksgiving. That's all that means. So, praise God for this. Okay? Thank you, God, for all of this. Biblical praise attributes God the Father as the source. Okay? Blessed be God. It's referring to the Father. And He then is the subject of every main verb in this long sentence. Okay? It's the Father that is the subject. But biblical praise also understands that the sphere of the Father's blessing is the Son. Okay, it says right there, look at that term, in Christ. That's the sphere in which you are blessed. And then biblical praise rightly estimates the quantity and kind of blessing. Look at the phrase, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't miss the word every. As a believer, you are not missing out on a single blessing. Do you know why? Because none of them is withheld. So this will debunk the false prophets that come along and say they have the key to real spiritual blessings. No, No, you don't, because God the Father has already given to us every blessing that we need. It is found in the sphere of who? In Christ. And it is complete. It's every, and notice the kind, it's spiritual. These are benefits by God's Spirit for our prosperity. Notice spiritual contrasted with earthly or temporal Which is interesting. Do you remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter? He's chained and he's under house arrest. And he is writing about a realm that the chains cannot keep him from. Nobody can imprison you from these blessings. Nobody can put you under house arrest so that you cannot enjoy the blessings of God communicated in chapter 1. So here's Paul. He's imprisoned. He's chained. But his spirit is not. Now reverse that, because I think this is a reality that we face sometimes in our our churches. None of us here, obviously, hopefully, is under house arrest here. Nobody walked in chained. No one had two Roman guards next to you. But in, in a way, your spirit is imprisoned. So here's Paul, physically imprisoned, free in his spirit. And here we are, even as believers sometimes, free to roam and unchained, but bound in our spirit. And Ephesians is truth that will set you free. There's truth here that needs to set believers free from wrong teaching, from wrong ideas about God, wrong assumptions. And there's ideas here that can clearly set unbelievers free from being a slave to sin. Now, anytime a word or phrase from this section is used to create anything other than comfort and rejoicing, it is being used wrongly. It's being used in a way it was never intended to be used. The heavenly places, okay, look at that phrase real quick, are the spiritual dimension in which God and all spiritual powers are dwelling. So, we have reason to believe, because Scripture teaches this, that in this room right now, we are not alone. Okay, number one, as a believer, we have the Holy Spirit of God in us, so he's here. Christ, even though he spiritually walked among the churches in Revelation 2 to 3 and observed, 
gave commendation and condemnation is typically seated at the right hand of the Father waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. And that's why he said, it's better for you that I go away. I will send to you another one, a comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. So he's here. But there is probably also other spiritual beings, as we're going to see when we get to, to Ephesians chapter 6, that, that we cannot see. They are not flesh and blood, but they are here both trying to do their work. And thankfully, we can't see them. But the problem is, as materialists, growing up in a very comfortable materialistic world, if we can't see something, we tend to believe it doesn't exist. And we set ourselves up for trouble when we eliminate that spiritual warfare that is so clearly communicated in this letter. So the heavenly places are not heaven where God is because we know there are evil powers in this place. It's not just earth, for it's not a matter of flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6 says. And it's not only the future, because Ephesians 6.12 says that we wrestle now with these things. So the sphere of these blessings is in the heavenly places. It's not just when we get to heaven, but there are blessings to be enjoyed and to benefit from. That's the idea of blessing now. How do we access these blessings? Through the right sphere. Remember that? Let me just look at chapter 1. In Christ, 11 times in one sentence, we are reminded where these blessings are. Look at verse 3. Who has blessed us, and I want you to say it with me, okay? So I want you to be looking so that you can respond with me. Verse 3. Who has blessed us in Christ. He chose us in Him. He predestines us for adoption. Go to the latter phrase. Through who? Or whom? Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. He has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery. Go to the latter part of verse 9. Set forth in who? In Christ. To unite All things in Him, verse 10. I'll just go through these quickly. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, in Him you also. Verse 13, a second usage, and believed in Him. So here's what we need to... Verse 3 is going to help remove uh, a a false teaching about God. God is not a cosmic genie in the bottle waiting to answer every request you have. He's not like this spiritual Santa Claus and he's just waiting to open up his big red bag and give you gifts. He is a good God who loves to reward and give gifts, but he's not like that. Jesus Christ is not simply the vehicle that takes you to the blessings it's not like you get into this car and close the doors and, and we're off to Disney, right? The car is simply to get you to, to a place you may, want, may or may not want to go. But for a young child, the, the vehicle, it doesn't matter what we're in. We're going to this destination. Jesus is not like that. He is the destination. And these blessings, these joys are found in him. He's not just taking you somewhere. Yes, he's, he's bringing you to himself into a totally new place. That'll be explained later, but right now, everything in the spiritual realm, every blessing has been given to you, and they are found and enjoyed in Christ. 
Having stated the general principle, Paul begins to mention the specifics of the blessings. So what are the blessings? The first blessing, so blessed by God. Now we're at our second point. The blessing of being chosen by God. Look at verse 4. Even as there's, there's that connection to these blessings. What are the spiritual, what are these What are these blessings that we have been blessed with? Look at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The first spiritual blessing goes back before creation. I want you to note that. Look at at verse 4. Before what? Before Before the foundation of the world. I told you this is a high peak, right? So we're now starting to climb. We're not summiting yet, but we're, we, can see, we can see it. We can see the peak. Before Genesis 1-1, Paul now, under inspiration by God's Spirit, in these breathed out words to us, is taking us to a glimpse of what is happening before God even spoke the words, let there be light. It's fascinating. Something happened in this pre-creation eternity and God purposed it. I don't know if he made a decision because he's all-knowing and he doesn't really react. I'm not sure that there are these decisions being made. But there is the will of God in a purpose even before you were, you, you were born. And look at verse 4. It says this. I want you to note the phrase carefully. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Three pronouns are closely connected to provide a contrast. I want you to note these. He, us, Him. Before the world was created, and this is beautiful, and this should provide comfort, the Father put us and Christ together in His plan. I think we can all agree with that because that's what Ephesians 1 4 is saying. Okay, by these, these, the close connection of these personal pronouns. So, I want, so this is what this means because we're going to get to this in this single sentence. The Father purposed, even before there was an Adam and an Eve and a tree of knowledge of good and evil, even before the serpent slithered into that paradise. The Father purposed that through the shed blood of His only Son, a sacrifice which had not yet happened, the Father purposed, verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That is unmerited favor. That is undeserved favor. For when He chose us, that's the wording, we're we're going to be disciplined and restrict ourselves to the wording without jumping over anybody's sense. We're going to stay within the boundaries. He knew when He chose us, He knew we would be positionally and practically unholy and blameworthy people who deserve judgment, not adoption. By the way, those are all Ephesians 1 words as well. There were definite actions. He chose we're not going to overdefine it, but we're not going to underdefine it either. It was a definite, completed action. 
And the reason the translators of nearly every translation selected that wording is because in the Greek, the word and the tense are clear. For instance, the King James Version reads, he hath chosen us. The New American Standard Bible says he chose us. The New Living Translation says it this way. God loved us and chose us. The NIV reads, he chose us. The Holman Standard Christian says he chose us. That's because that's what God's word says. Now, we haven't explained it yet. But we must first realize the truth, and that is God's choosing us, often called election and called election in Romans is something that he did. It is not a phrase coined by Augustine of Hippo or Jacob Arminius or John Calvin. It is a term chosen carefully by God, breathed out to one of his apostles. And it's not just for our understanding, it's for our benefit. Go back to that word in the introduction. Heavenly blessing. So election is not a dirty word. Or a concept that needs to be treated as an enemy. Election, whatever God's choice entails, is our friend because it's a purpose of God before he even said, let there be light. Are we in agreement on that? In addition, whatever he chose us means, it must be understood as a description of the good news. Because that's what this letter is all about. So if you hear the word election or that God chose us before the foundation of the world and somehow this shade overcomes your heart, you're thinking about it wrongly. Okay, it's got to be good news or you have believed somebody else's definition of it that's inaccurate. If it ever feels like bad news, it's being proclaimed inaccurately. And remember, chapters one to three are going to communicate the gospel story from a height that we've never seen it before. This is one of those blessings as you get a glimpse into who God is and what he has done. So we align to God's word. It does not align to us. Right. So if someone moves to make this phrase about God not loving some people. That is a false teaching. Because God's word says God so loved the world and he gave, he initiated something and he, he initiated grace by sending his only son. If someone moves to make this about God condemning some against their will, that is also false teaching. Because scripture says in John three seventeen, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Look in verse 4 at the word even. It should be the first word in most of your translations. Uh, big idea, it's a comparative conjunction. It connects the idea to the former idea, which is being blessed with spiritual blessings. So what is this blessing of being chosen by God? We will begin to tackle this this morning in the five minutes I have left. And we will resume this in two weeks as we then consider and add another difficult concept to it of his predestining. That's also going to be in the next couple of verses. First, election in most cases in the Old and New Testament, as it is here, has God as the subject. And he is the only one that fully knows what is happening because he's God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the things that are revealed belong to us and our children, but the things that are not revealed, they, they belong to God. 
you are getting a glimpse of a mystery, but nowhere is it going to be fully divine, not even in Romans. It has God as the subject. He chose. Second, the subject chose something. God's the subject, and he chose. And a choice is made among options. That's just the simple idea about choices. The object's reference is Paul and the recipients of this letter. Look back at verse 1. Paul, the saints who are in Ephesus. That's why he uses the plural. He chose us. So he's not writing to an individual. He's writing to a, a body of believers. Paul includes himself in that group, even though he's not part of that church at Ephesus. So the recipients of this choice is a body or group of believers. Third, there is no indication in this term of either dislike or favoritism. So a choice is made among options, but nothing is communicated about dislike or favoritism. For example, God's choice of Israel as a nation does not communicate his hostility to other nations. He chose Israel. God's choice of the tribe Levi for the priesthood did not imply anything negative about the other tribes. He elected Levi to be the tribe of the priesthood. Nowhere in Scripture is election contrasted with reprobation. Now, you might have taken a, believed and accepted a logical tangent that whatever this means, God chose some, that means he chose to reprobate others. That is not taught in Scripture. It speaks only of those chosen and nothing of those not chosen. Unless you read into a phrase in Romans where, where Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's a whole other discussion that fits into the context of Romans, Paul writing a letter to that specific church. Also about this term, God chose us in Christ. He chose us in connection with Christ. It does not say he chose us through faith in Christ. Scriptures don't say that. That's another fence that we're, gonna, we're not going to jump over. Nor does it say that because of his omniscience and foresight, he knew who would believe in him. Therefore, we are called his chosen. No, he said he did this before the foundation of the world. It says nothing of his omniscience or his foresight. Again, we're going to be disciplined to stay on the narrowest biblical trail on this doctrine. Those are man-made additions. Some of the guesses, some of the logical points may have a kernel of truth. And what I would ask is, okay, show that to me in God's word. Where does it say that? Where does it communicate that alternative idea? What this passage does claim is that God's choice was, verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. It says nothing about our will, and, I'm, and by that I'm not removing human responsibility, but there is something that happened before Genesis 1-1 where he chose, and it was according to the purpose of his will. Therefore, it is good. And therefore, he deserves praise, because it'll say that, to the praise of his glorious grace. Listen to what 2 Timothy 1, 8-9 says. The gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay, that's what God's word says. 
So as we, as we move and take some of these thoughts, these, these spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, and we prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper, here's two points that this doctrine should highlight. Number one, God's grace. God's grace. Unmerited favor. And second, God's initiative. And by the way, that is also seen in the doctrine of the virgin birth. If the virgin birth says anything, it says this. Man cannot produce his own savior. It had to be from the divine initiative of God stepping into human history and providing a miraculous child who is the savior of the world. That's as high as we have time to climb this morning. And what I'm going to prepare our hearts for so we're not distracted is I'm going to I'm going to take five more minutes to apply this. And then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And whatever additional time we take, we will we will still give you the coffee connect time for fellowship, because I think that's very important. But but let, let, let me give you a warning by one of the commentators. I think it's very appropriate. Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election. And we should beware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. Here's the tension. And I'm going to fly through some scriptures, so if if you want to close your copy of the scriptures, my commitment to you is I will read these word for word. Here's the tension. Romans 3.11 says this, No one seeks for God. Jesus said this in John 6.35-40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Here's the tension. I want you to hear it. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It seems like contradictory terms. The Father gives, and people believe. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, yet whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And here's one of the reasons I think we get a glimpse of, we get a glimpse of election. It says this, So that no one may boast. So it is true that God chose us, but it is also true, John 3.16 that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is true that God predestined us, but it is also true that whoever believes and whoever comes to Jesus, he will never cast out. It is true that before the world was created, the Father put us in Christ together in his plan, but it is also true that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. It is true that God's divine purposes will be accomplished, or he's not God. But but it's also true that God is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is true that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. 
But it is also true that he is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe, 1 Timothy 4.10. It is true that Jesus came preaching in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel, as though it's something the people could do. But it's also true, as Jesus said in John 6.65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The old preacher H.A. Ironside tried to tried to provide understanding by communicating it this way. He says, it's as if you happen on your journey to approach a narrow door and on the front of the door is painted the words of Jesus' gracious universal invitation, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And you walk through the door And you look back, and on that same door from the other side is the comforting reassurance of God's sovereign election in love He predestined us for adoption. I've often explained it like this. You are speeding on the highway to hell, and you've got these like spiritual state troopers following you because you are a lawbreaker. And you you are flying down the road, and you don't care. But all of a sudden, you see an exit ramp up ahead, And over that exit ramp, it says, whosoever will. And for some strange reason, beyond nothing, beyond anything that you could have planned, you have remorse, you have the gift of conviction, and immediately you recognize you are a sinner. And you're coming up on it, and it says, whosoever will. And you quickly turn that car, and you take the exit ramp, and you look back over that same arch, and it says, God's elect. You can try to explain that mystery, and people have to the hurt of the church. They've over-explained it, over-defined it. All I'm going to say to you this morning is election is your friend. And in difficulty and comfort, election is one of God's gracious purposes for your benefit. I'm going to call the music team forward. And as they come forward and as we prepare, and I'll ask our deacons, those serving us this morning, to come forward as well. Ephesians 1, here here are some assurances I want us to hear. Verse 3 assures us that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Secondly, verse 4 assures me that God, in some way, chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 assures me that God, in love, predestined me for adoption to Himself as a son. And this was according to the purpose of His will. And verse 7 assures me that in Christ I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of my trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And verse 8 assures me that He lavished these on me in His wisdom and in His insight. It's an incredible mystery. And it is incredible Good news that God took the initiative to do something before I was even born. And I stand here in Christ, in the sphere of all those heavenly blessings, not the least of those being I am forgiven. I am redeemed by his blood. And that's what we're going to remember this morning. We're going to lift the emblems of his broken body and his shed blood to our lips. And we will do exactly what Ephesians says several times to the praise of your glorious grace. Let's pray.